The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm actually, this is Sally Ganga. I'll be the guest host today. Welcome to today's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. Um, first off, I do want to apologize. We were going to look at how best to approach MIT's essay questions today, but our expert couldn't make the show. So instead, we'll be discussing how to approach the University of Chicago's essay questions for this year's application. However, the rest of the show will be as planned. We'll finish up the show with an overview of the National Merit Scholarship process. But first, are you a student with C's or even D's on your transcript? Since all the news about college admissions seems to imply that even the very best students will struggle finding an institution to accept them, what is a CD student to do? My first guest, Ken and Dick, will walk us through the college process for a student whose transcript is less than perfect. As a former senior admissions officer at Swarthmore, Drexel, and Johnson State, and as a college coach educator, I'm sure he's seen students at all ends of the spectrum. Welcome, Kenan. Hi, Sally. How are you tonight or today? I'm doing, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm doing great, Kenan. I'm so glad you're here with me today. Um, sure. So let's My go- pleasure. <laughs> so let's go ahead and just get started. Kenan, what should a CD student do? What kinds of colleges might be available for a student like that? I think a lot of them probably think that college, that community colleges might be their only option. Um, you know, don't most colleges require students have at least B's to gain admission? Um, mm-hmm. we, keep, we keep hearing how hard it is to get in, so I'll bet some of these students think they should just give up, but I'm, I'm betting you've got better news than that. I think I do. And I think, you know, um, certainly my experience at Swarthmore College, you know, was, was in that highly selective realm. But most of my career, actually, the other half of my career was at a, a small school in upstate Vermont called Johnson State College, uh, which probably many people have not heard of. But it was pretty close to open enrollment. And I also worked at Drexel University, which um, wasn't as selective, certainly, as, as Swarthmore College but I think offers the kind of um, opportunities that students might not know that are out there. And so, yes, we hear a lot of the kind of hysteria about how hard it is to get into places like, you know, Georgetown or Brown or, you know, those types of schools. But most of the schools out there are for what we might think of as kind of the normal student. And for a student who wants, you know, has a C average and wants to go to a four-year school, there are, there are a lot of options out there that they might not have known were there. And so, you know, I was just actually talking about this with um, a parent just a couple of hours ago, and she has that student. She has a student who had a 74 average and uh, was taking some pretty 
good courses. And, you know, even though his grades weren't that high, he was still, you know, trying AP courses and things of that nature. And so, you know, part of our, um, you know, the, the process of generating a list for that student produced a number of schools that was over 40 schools that he could choose from. And there were a lot of schools that were in that no problem group, a lot of schools that were in the just right, and of course, some that were in the challenging group too. So, mm-hmm. you know, even for that C student, um, there are a lot of four-year options that are going to be available to them. And will, will uh, some of those schools at least be residential options, do you think, or mostly commuter schools? Oh, absolutely. You're definitely going to have commu- uh, commuter options are going to be probably the, the minority. I would say most of them are going to have residential options, if Great. not be um, centered around residential living. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there's, there's also different profiles for that C student. You know, there are some students that um, do very well in some areas and, and rather poorly in other areas, so it brings their, their GPA down. Um, and oftentimes it's the late bloomer, the student who maybe got C's and D's in freshman year um, and then started to improve over sophomore, junior, and into senior year. And so they may have an overall maybe 78 GPA, but their grades are much stronger in their junior year than in freshman and sophomore year. And I have a student that I'm working with that's classically in, in that model. And I think that for, for schools that certainly are on the smaller side, they recognize that pattern and the fact that they are kind of the late bloomer. And so um, there's better options for that student than perhaps the student who's kind of steadily um, in that C range. Okay. All right. So that's good to know. So that kind of lets me highlight something that I always tell people, which is that the GPA isn't the end-all, be-all. If you're a D student in ninth grade, but then you're a B student in 11th grade, they're going to be really optimistic. I mean, is that what you found in your experience, that the colleges will still be interested in, in many cases? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that upward trend and the fact that as an academic, they're maturing, um, because oftentimes you'll see blips in the road in ninth grade. So the transition to high school, especially for the student who um, isn't that confident in the classroom, that can be a difficult transition to make, especially with the new expectations that they find in high school versus middle school. So the student who then kind of gets their feet underneath them, maybe is, uh, does a little bit better in sophomore year, does even better in junior year, absolutely that student seems like they're on a track that they'll be ready for, for college-level work. And so when I was working at Johnson State College, we would absolutely be comfortable with uh, taking that type of student. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's wonderful news. Now, so you've already mentioned one college, Johnson State, which is really a, a, an office that's looking out for students like that. Um, but how does a student, and obviously we here at College Coach like to help people find that list of schools, but for people who aren't working with us directly, um, mm-hmm. you know, what, um, how, do, how, how do you recommend that those CD students find colleges themselves? Like, how do they go about the research process? That can be a little bit difficult, um, and I find that, that, that students have to, to dig a little bit more deeply um, because the difficulty that I have with that question is that the GPA can be made in so many different ways, and there's so many different scales out there and weighted and unweighted, so it's, it's sometimes difficult to figure out where a student excuse me, might fit in. So uh, my, actually, I, I would probably say my first instinct would be to have the student talk with their guidance counselor, especially if they have a good guidance counselor um, that they have a good relationship with, to get a sense of where their profile might fit best. Um, Certainly in some of the search engines that you have out there, if you put in the GPA 
it, it can give you a, a ballpark range that's probably okay. But you'll have to take those schools and then uh, do the extra research, talk to people from their admissions offices to find out if that student's profile is going to fit with their academics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, big futures on College Board's website and, and those types of search engines, I think, can get you halfway there, but then you have to, to do the legwork on your own. A lot of these schools will also come to visit your high school, so they actually will come and visit and give the student the opportunity to meet one-on-one with those admissions officers to get a better sense of whether or not, you know, their grade profile is going to be eligible for admission at their particular school. Okay, and so that brings up a question for me that I actually get a lot from students. Should they just be really open with the admission counselor about what their transcript looks like? I mean, if they have a chance to talk to them alone, should they even just show them their transcript maybe and say, look, this is, this is my profile. Should I, should I keep going? Should I try for your college? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I really don't see the risk in that, quite honestly. Um, I mean, they're going to see your transcript anyway. So if you show it to them a few months early versus, you know, um, during the application phase, what, what's really going to be the fundamental difference there? Mm-hmm. So I think that um, if you have a chance and, um, and you can get that kind of pre-read, you can get some good information as to how they're, um, they're viewing it. And especially if you're meeting with this, um, with this person in, say, spring of the junior year, they may be able to give you advice on how to choose classes for senior year, what they're going to be looking for. Um, maybe you were thinking about not taking that Spanish class and what would be their advice. Do I take it? Do I not take it? And you can get some valuable feedback that way to get a sense of how you might better prepare for an application to that school in the future. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, and also they, there may be things that are intangibles on that transcript that, um, that they may notice that you might not have appreciated. So there may be um, patterns in your grades um, that, uh, you know, they may not care as much about math courses because they don't have required math courses. So they're willing to kind of give that a little bit more of a pass. But these uh, courses over here are going to get more focus. So you want to make mm-hmm. sure that, um, that they have strong grades in your senior year. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of input that they might be able to give you that I think would be helpful in planning ahead. Okay. So that's actually great news. So even for a student who... Like definitely they should start with their guidance counselor. They should use Big Future on the college board for college searches. But really they should realize that they're, that the admission counselor at the schools can, can be a real ally and be a real source of information. I think that's mm-hmm. a great message for people to hear. And actually, I just want to piggyback on that because when I worked at Whittier College, um, I think they're more selective now, so it might be probably is more challenging for a C student to get in. But back then, we were taking C students, and um, and I had this one student, loved him, football player. Um, he came in, asked what he had to do to get in, and I said, no more Ds, Ernesto, <laughs> no more Ds, and I want to see more Bs. And I was very clear with him exactly what he needed to do, and I was happy to take the time, um, you know, I was really happy to take the time to kind of mentor him. And actually, we became close enough that um, uh, when I was leaving to go to University of Chicago, he somehow found out about it and came in to say goodbye to me and was very sad mm-hmm. to see me go. So I, I like to, I'm just mentioning that story because I think people don't realize that the admission counselor really can be an ally, and I just, I can't stress that enough. Right. And yeah. I think that, you know, they, they often think of the admissions person as kind of that gatekeeper and kind of some, mm-hmm. sometimes standoffish, especially for the more selective schools. But the vast majority of admissions people are, you see themselves as advocates for those students, 
And so, you know, especially at Johnson State College, our mission was to help students make that transition from high school to, to college. And, you know, whether that was, um, you know, a student who might, who might be a little bit at risk and go through our summer program or uh, something like that, we can offer some of those opportunities to help bridge some of those gaps. And, and that, we felt, was our job, is to help get them to where they need to go. And, you know, in highly selective admissions, it's kind of the opposite, right, where we're only going to make about, you know, 10 to 20% of the, the students who apply happy, right, and the other 80% are going to be disappointed with the decision. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of admissions offices are playing under completely different rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's good I- for people to know that. Yeah, without a doubt. And I did kind of think about that. I felt like in some ways when I started at Whittier, I was in an office of admission because we were admitting 80% back then. And then I went Mm -hmm. to University of Chicago and it it was almost like, and I loved the school. This is in no way a negative about Chicago, but suddenly I was working for an office that was almost an office of rejection because we just couldn't couldn't admit everybody. And so I didn't have as much time to... Yeah, to really mentor students. But um, mm-hmm. so I do have another question, though. Will what do you think about the difference between students with D's versus students with a lot of D's on their transcript? I mean, maybe one or two D's. You know, student still has a C average. I think that's one camp. But I could see a mm-hmm. student who really has a significant number of D's. You know, maybe being at a it can even be a whole nother level of challenge to find those schools. So, what are your thoughts about those students? Right. I think that they may still find that there are certainly um, less options than the C student, but there may still be some four-year programs and residential programs that will admit them. Um, oftentimes, you know, that may be on a probationary basis or something like that. Um, at, at Johnson State, we had the PROOF program, which was a summer program where they had to come in, do remedial work, make sure that their, their study skills and English and math skills were where they needed to be and work pretty hard on those all summer so that they could transition into the fall fairly smoothly. And, you know, some students made it and some students didn't. And so I think that, you know, there's programs like that. The community college or two-year college route might be a good option for some of those students. And the part of what I'd like to see about um, students that go this route is that, especially if they have holes in their transcript where maybe their math skills just aren't up to par, or, you know, there's some other um, skill set that's just missing at that point. Community colleges are great places to really focus on that, and they can take one or two or three courses in the first couple of semesters, focus on what they need to do in order to get to the point where all of their skills that, they're, that they need to be successful in college are all ready to go, mm-hmm. um, where you often will not have that ability to do that in a four-year college setting. So... That, that remedial coursework can be, you know, a really a lifesaver for some students. Mm-hmm. It's what also is, well set up. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, please. It's also well set up in that um, most of the community colleges and a lot of the two-year colleges have articulation agreements with uh, area four-year institutions so that you know exactly what courses you need to take at that level that are going to transfer over to the four-year program. So you can do that fairly efficiently, fairly low cost, and, um, and do that well. The difficulty, I think, with that is that you are asking the student to make two transitions. So they're adapting to the community college um, in one year, and a few years later, they're adapting to the four-year college. So sometimes that works well for students, um, and they can adapt fairly quickly. Other students have difficulty with those transitions, and it might represent a bigger hurdle for those kids. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's any advantages or disadvantages between like a two-year commuter school also versus a resident? Like what are, I guess what I should say is what are some of the advantages of a residential college? Um, we already mm-hmm. know uh, some of the advantages of a commuter school. It kind of gives you a chance. It's a lower cost way of, uh, you know, kind of getting your feet under you. But what's the uh, what's the benefit of starting at a residential college right away if you are able to do so? Good question. Um, yeah, there's definitely pro- pros and cons to both. Um, you know, one with a community college is that you get a second chance at, at the, maybe a more selective four-year college that might not have been open to you. Um, as, you know, as an applicant right out of high school. But I think one of the advantages to the four-year programs, especially if you have a student who, for whatever reason, um, didn't perform well in high school, but is reasonably assured they're going to do well in college. And if they're going towards programs like a pre-med program or especially um, a more structured major like engineering, it can be really difficult to transition from a two-year program to the four-year program and do that smoothly with all the credits that you need. And for a pre-med kid, you know, even if they have that transition of credits from one school to the next, you're still looking at preparing for uh, medical school applications and the MCATs and getting to know professors well enough, hopefully, in that junior year so that you can get the recommendations that you need. Whereas a student who's been at a school for all four years has those relationships most likely with faculty and finds those recommendation letters a little bit more easily um, asked for and received. So I think um, for students who are going into those types of programs, the two-year program might not work well for them. Mm-hmm. So it, it, kind it, of it can sa- be very tricky. Yeah. It kind of sounds like the students who have the maturity, um, who are ready to live away from home, and the students who have the ambition to work in an intensive academic program like pre-med or engineering – if they can get into the residential college, that's really probably going to be the way the way for them to go. Right. right. And, you know, my, my brother-in-law is kind of a classic example of that um, in that, you know, he was a, a C-plus student in high school, obviously very bright, but just, you know, didn't feel like doing the work. And, and kind of senior year kind of saw the light and, um, and went to um, a four-year college, got his degree, went on to med school, and, and is doing well. So, you know, because they have that C-plus student, you know, in high school or that C-plus record, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that that track or that pattern is is set for them for a two-year program. So maybe that the four-year option is great. Okay. All right. Thank you. And I think it's great for us to to leave this segment on a really positive note that you can go on to do great things, you know, even uh, beginning at a school that is a little bit less selective initially. Um, so thank you, Kenan. We'll be taking a short break, but when we return, Kenan and I will be discussing the University of Chicago's essay questions and how to approach them. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before, our next segment is on the University of Chicago's essay questions. I'll be able to add plenty to this discussion as I worked as an associate director of admission at the University of Chicago from 1999 to 2002. So while some of the questions are updated every year, I can still give you the, the point of view of a former insider. I'm very glad to say, however, that Ken and Dick my colleague will be joining me again for this segment to help me parse through these questions. His many years of experience with College Coach means he has plenty of insight to add as well. Welcome back, Kenan. Thank you, Sally. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and just sort of dive right in. I mean, when I, even for me, the University of Chicago essay questions can be a little bit intimidating at first, you know? Um, yeah. But let's break them down into segments and let's go ahead and, and sort of talk about the so called easy ones first. Um, how do you, for example, advise your students when they're thinking about the first question or what I call the Why Chicago essay? Excellent question. Um, well, first of all, let me just preface this answer by um, saying that you know, I, I like I, I see University of Chicago and, and where I worked at Swarthmore College to be kind of similar in, in many ways in that they're quite different from what I would say is kind of the standard experience. And so what I think when I'm advising students and answering this question is that I want them to really show the reader that they understand the experience of University of Chicago and, um, and really tap into that intellectual bent that they have on campus. And if, if they're not able to do that, then oftentimes they will really struggle with this question. But if, if they are, I think, a true um, you know, quality applicant to University of Chicago, this is going to be kind of a fun answer for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, when you're here, when you're on tour and things of that nature um, at Chicago, you know, students will say, you know, 
that the tour guide was talking about how, you know, being in, in the library on a Friday night is it's just kind of normal. And students will talk about their uh, biology research over lunch, and you can talk about kind of esoteric, um, you know, reading that you're doing, and they understand and they can talk to you about it. You know, mm-hmm. so I was interviewing this student who was an applicant there, actually, and um, and he was talking about how he's kind of on a recent uh, kick uh, reading Thomas Paine. And so, you know, he was he had read things like Common Sense and Rights of Man, Nature Reason, and uh, and he was talking to the tour guide, and the tour guide had, had read some of this stuff, too. He was like, holy smokes, you know, nobody in my high school reads this stuff, and you do? He's like, Yeah. And so they were talking about how John Adams thought he was total crap and you wrote in response, you know, thoughts on government and that kind of thing. And it was just, you know, and all of a sudden he's like, just, he just lights up. He's like, this is the greatest place ever. This is the kind of people that I want to be with, right? And, exactly. Um, and so, you know, that I think really speaks to, you know, the type of student that wants to go there. But for some students, that's not what they're looking for. And so, um, so I think that, you know, it really, you have to have that sense of match. You have to go there. You have to feel it. But if you do, uh, oftentimes this is a fairly easy um, application essay to write because you've had those experiences and you've tapped into those kinds of students and can see the, the, the parallels between your wished experience and what they're going, what they're already experiencing. So I think mm-hmm. it's um, for that type of student, um, you know, the parallels are definitely there. Mm-hmm. And can I just say that I can't agree with you enough? I mean, the student who can really display that sort of intellectual excitement and who acknowledges the extra level of intellectualism at University of Chicago, they always did better in our pool, um, in our applicant pool. And a student who even wrote about, um, you know, kind of talked about what they wanted to do at Chicago, but also said, and when I visited, I got to geek out. I'm using more informal language, of course. But I got to geek <laughs> out on Thomas Paine with my tour guide. And I thought, what a, this is the greatest place I've ever been. It's a perfect match for me. So, so students who really kind of call to you know, and, and express their affection for what I, I personally affectionately call it, nerdy a nerdy place like Chicago, are probably going to do really well. And I do want to stress, by the way, that we looked at that essay very closely. It's really a mistake for students to not work hard on that particular essay question. It doesn't, although, as you said, for the right student, it'll probably be easy, um, but it is an important question is what I'm trying to get across. We really viewed it as important as the common application question. One other tip I want to give, by the way, is Chicago is very proud of their core curriculum. So it is a good idea to mention the core, which usually isn't hard to do for students who are the right match as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, I would just echo that in that um, at Swarthmore College, you know, the white Swat essay was super important. You know, and if, if we didn't feel like they had a good sense of who we were, um, then, you know, that, that applicant was in trouble. And right. so, you know, we wanted a sense of that Quaker heritage and you know, that intellectual intensity, which I think they absolutely share with University of Chicago. And, you know, just people who read, you know, sometimes esoteric stuff like, you know, common sense or rights of man, just because they want to. And, um, and so it's, it's that kind of persona that we're looking for and, people who want to surround themselves with other students that are like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on to the second question. Um, this one is optional, but it asks you to share with us a few of your favorite books, poems, authors, pieces of music, musicians, 
blogs, magazines, newspapers, etc. I didn't even list all of them. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that one, and how do you recommend your students approach it? Great question. Um, I really think that that this question kind of separates the Chicago applicant from the non-Chicago applicant. Um, because of the the kinds of things that a, a true, this is in my mind anyway, a true Chicago applicant is going to read is going to be um, very different from what other students are going to list here. And so I've had a couple students in the past where the only thing that they could list was um, maybe a, a museum opening and books that they had read for school, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a, another conversation with um, another student and, um, again, you know, kind of an, an interview, and he was just talking kind of informally about, um, you know, greenhouse gases and things like that, and then he said, you know, only, only 2% of greenhouse gases actually come from, uh, from landfills, and he said this in the conversation. I'm like, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, the EPA puts out reports each year on, on kind of the, the trending here. And I'm like, you read EPA reports? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, right. And you're 17. Yeah, mm-hmm. why not? I was curious. And, yeah. you know, and that's the kind of thing that, that they'll do, you know. Um, and like my other example, you know, uh, who, write, who reads Rights of Man and, you know, and Thoughts on Government? You know, these kids do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if all you can put is the latest Star Wars movie and, you know, and the latest Dan Brown uh, book, then, you know, it's probably not a good match for you. Right, right. I can't agree with you more. Um, and just kind of a quick tip about this, too. You can either list them, but sometimes students will write a little bit about why they're attracted um, to different mm-hmm. things. And at least when I was there, either one was completely fine uh, with Chicago. I mean, you shouldn't be wordy just to be wordy. You know, short is completely fine. But if you had something that you really wanted to say, like sometimes students would just explain a little bit why these different, um, you know, uh, works of, of literature or music or whatever mattered to them. And that did add a little bit of, um, of uh, kind of commentary and, and, and gave us a sense of their fit even beyond the works themselves. But I completely agree with you. It's a very important question for assessing fit. For assessing, again, as I call it, the nerd factor. If you are applying to University of Chicago or Swarthmore, I bet, you should really mm-hmm. wear your nerd flag proudly. <laughs> Just be Absolutely. ready to own it. <laughs> yeah. Get ready to own it. That's right. Just ready to own it. All right. So, um, all right, so let's go on to the big one. And I, I, I know that we don't have time to read through all of the options or even address them all. Um, so mm-hmm. let's first kind of talk about Chicago's main essay generally. Like, what do you think Chicago wants to learn about a con- candidate from these essays? And in a sense, why are their topics so challenging or even downright weird? Uh, like, what do you think that they're trying to get out of it? The readers at Chicago, I mean. Right. What... You know, and again, I, I haven't been in the in the committee room as you have, but um, what I think that they're trying to get at is, does this kid think outside the box? I mean, is this kid kind of a go-with-the-flow kind of um, kid? And if you ask them about their favorite book, they're going to say The Gatsby, you know, Great Gatsby, like everybody else says. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not interested in that. We're interested in students who want to think differently, want to kind of push the edges of knowledge and figure out what's out there and create new knowledge. And you can't do that if you're solidly in the mainstream. So I think it's, you know, how does this, how does this person think differently? Can they, you know, take these kind of weird questions and run with it? Um, 
And, you know, for some students, I think that they're completely intimidated. And, you know, quite honestly, I'm intimidated by some of these questions. But um, some kids are totally intimidated by it. And some people look at these questions and go, hey, this is kind of fun. I can do any of these, right? And this is going to be, you know, an interesting challenge to, to try to come up with a cogent argument for, you know, um, you know, why orange is the new black and what's in and what's out. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that becomes kind of a, a fun academic exercise. And I think mm-hmm. for those kids, um, you recognize that in the question or the answer that they, um, that they pose for the question. Um, and so I think that thinking outside the box is one of the, one of the key elements. Mm-hmm. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really think even though you weren't in the committee room, I really, I, I really think you nailed it. And and I want to tell you that we all, I mean, in general, the essays that came back usually exceeded our expectations in terms of creativity. I mean, the best essays on every topic, we would just kind of go, wow, we didn't even think of that. And in all honesty, the essay topics as written, you know, we didn't have a particular right answer in mind. I mean, just like any college essay, but I think especially for University of Chicago, we really were curious about what students were going to come up with. And often their, you know, their responses were so creative and so thoughtful, um, you know, that it was really exceptional. And it made it, it made it, by the way, a really fun place to work, you know, to read those essays because, um, you know, I think we also got across in the essay topic that we didn't want someone to just say, you know, I want to major in economics because I want to make a lot of money. You know, it was very clear to most applicants that that wasn't what we were looking for. And so we ended up with a really creative applicant pool. And that was something mm-hmm. that I loved. So, um, all right. right, great. Well, let's pick out a topic, um, maybe just one topic from this year to discuss in more depth. Is there, is there one among the topics that looks a little interesting to you? Ah. Uh. That's a good question. <laughs> there's a, there's don't worry, I don't expect, kind of... yeah, I'm sorry, I don't worry, I don't expect you to have all the answers on it, because like I said, you know, the people who worked at University of Chicago didn't either, and we actually only right. have about, you know, four minutes left at this point, but but I, I am curious if there's one, because this is how I always started off with my students who are looking at Chicago. I say, read over these, tell me if there's one that calls to you more than another, and then we kind of unpack right. it a little. Well, I think, you know, to kind of um, piggyback on our, our other conversation, um, that, you know, essay option four, the art, art is either plagiarism or revolution, um, mm-hmm. I think is actually kind of just a, an extension of what we were discussing before. And, you know, if you, if you think of art as plagiarism and just kind of um, recreating what's already there, it, there's, there's going to be kind of a sense of boredom about it. But if it's a if it's something that's brand new, if you're breaking barriers, if you're looking at things differently, and um, and kind of creating something that hasn't been seen before, then that's I think what they mean by the revolution. And I think what they're looking for is the student who is looking to create the revolution, not necessarily just retread and and learn what others already know. Mm-hmm. So and I so I think that that's just kind of emblematic of of what Chicago kind of is looking for in applications from my point of view. Mm-hmm. I'd absolutely agree. And I, and I wanted to, I want to say too, that Chicago always really sort of signaled, um, you know, there, there were definitely some questions um, that the university of Chicago puts out there that are sort of meant to be funny. This one is really meant to be a pretty serious questions. Um, you know, a pretty serious question. And so I think they really want students to grapple with it and think about it and maybe even, mm-hmm. And I think that most students will call their own art revolution. 
and will work really hard to justify how that's the case. But I also do want to say to students that they don't need to be afraid to take the contrary view. Um, because uh-huh. one of the things that I really liked at Chicago, at, at least when I was there, is that students were really were really rewarded for their bravery in their essays if that bravery was sincere. If the, we really felt like they'd kind of put their all into their argument, um, you know, we, we appreciated it even if we disagreed with them, right? Exactly, um, exactly. That be- yeah. That being said, you don't want to be contrary just to be clever. Like I had a student who argued... I, I worked with a student, and I'm sure he was trying to be clever, who sort of wrote an essay about why we should take seriously one of the boy bands. I can't remember which one. And I just thought, mm-hmm. you're just trying to be clever. Like, I am not convinced. First of all, I doubt your taste, if you are sincere. But I really thought that he was just trying to be clever. And as a result, he kind of, you know, lost, um, sort of lost a few points with me. And it was really a lost opportunity to me, that he mm-hmm. would write about something that he actually didn't care about. Because this question, you should write about something you care about. And also, one of the things that I like to point out is that I really think the definition of art um, can be broader here. Like, like, don't mean, don't limit it to, you know, I do ceramics, I do painting, I do sculpture, I'm an artist. If I don't do those things, I'm not an artist. You know, the, the use here of art can be actually very, very broad. To a certain degree, your art can be how you live your life. Right. And I also think that um, you bring up a great point, which is I think that in these applicant pools, like a Swarthmore, like a um, University of Chicago, that it's not necessarily the viewpoint that you are arguing for, but how well you're crafting your argument. So we can mm-hmm. disagree with you vehemently from, you know, in terms of your viewpoint. But you have, if you have a well-crafted argument, if you're bringing something to the table in terms of that academic argument that's new, that's different, that makes me think, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. That, that, I think, is more of what they're looking for. Even though I might not um, agree with you at all, I understand you know, it's a well-considered, well-thought-through argument. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, what gets more of the respect than the viewpoint itself. Exactly. And then I guess one last point that I'm going to make, because we're, we're getting close to having to wrap it up, is I want to talk about sure. essay option six, where they allow you to pose a question of your own. And it says, if your prompt is original and thoughtful, then you should have little, little trouble writing a great essay. Sometimes what students will do here is they'll just kind of paste in an essay from another college that doesn't really match a University of Chicago essay. I just want to be clear that I don't recommend that. <laughs> As someone who used to work yep. there, we really didn't like that. I mean, because, you know, you know if, a, if an essay is a Chicago essay, it's a Chicago essay. If it isn't, it isn't. Um, right. So to that point, though, if as a student you can't find that essay option that you like, don't feel free to go for essay option seven, which is to go back to this to uh, past essay topics. And I really want to encourage students to do that. Um, all right. Well, we have to go now. But I really um, thank you so much, Kenan, for your help with both of these topics. Listeners, don't My go pleasure. away. Yeah, yeah, thank you again. And don't go away, listeners, as when we return in just a few minutes, we'll be discussing the National Merit Scholarship process. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks so much for staying with us. And now we'll be talking to Kathy Ruby, who, um, one of my colleagues who has a very impressive level of experience, including being most recently Assistant Vice President of Enrollment and Dean of Student Financial Aid at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. That plus her work counseling families through College Coach makes her well qualified to tell us about the National Merit Scholarship process. Welcome, Kathy. Hi, Sally. Glad to be here. Oh, thank you. So, Kathy, let's just get started right to the core of it. What is national merit? What is this thing that everybody talks about? Okay, well, national merit is a scholarship competition, but it's also a recognition program. Um, And it's based on a student's scores on the practice SAT that they take in October of their junior year. So the National Merit Scholarship Corporation runs this program. Um, Now, if you make it into the competition, which means you're a finalist, Um, That means you might receive a scholarship from a participating school or you might get one from a company that your parent works for or maybe a company that's a corporation that's in your community Um, or you might actually get money from the National Merit Scholarship Corporation uh, itself. Um, If you don't make it to finalist status, you may also, there are many students who, uh, who who become commended scholars and those are students who are commended, but they don't, necessarily, they don't get any money associated with that commendation. They're just recognized for their high scores on the test. But okay. you have to be a finalist to actually get money. 
Yeah, well, I, I figured that out when I was in high school because I got commended, but I didn't uh-huh. make it. I didn't make it past that. So shoot, right? I know, um, darn. Yeah. But anyway, how are um, how are national merit finalists selected? How do students get to that point? Okay. Well, first you have to be a semifinalist, and it it turns out that national merit it appears just sent out the notices of semifinalist status because at College Coach we just got our first question today from somebody who's been um, made a semifinalist. So again, those semifinalists, um, they're selected based on the scores um, in, on that October PSAT, and there are 16,000 um, semifinalists selected at this point of year. And the cutoff to qualify, it's based on your PSAT score, but it varies by state um, because there's they, the Corp- National Merit Corporation looks at what percentage of high school graduates come from your state, um, and then they come up with a selection index. So it really can vary by state. If you search online for, you know, qualifying PSAT score by state, um, there are some websites out there that list it. Um, do know there's nothing official from National Merit that lists those, and they can vary a little bit from year to year, but they don't change all that much from year to year. But they're mm-hmm. definitely, you know, they're in the 200s for sure, and in the mm-hmm. top 1% essentially. Okay. All right. Great. So once you're notified that you are a semifinalist, how and when do you progress to finalist status? So when you get notified you're a semifinalist, National Merit provides you with plenty of instruction on how to progress. But essentially what will happen is you'll have to submit an application. Um, You're going to provide a transcript. Your high school is going to, you know, your principal is going to endorse you and say, yes, this person should be a National Merit finalist. Um, And then you also have to make sure you take the SATs. Um, because the National Merit Scholarship Corporation will look at your SAT scores to make sure they they validate your PSAT scores. Um, And then they're also going to have you submit a transcript. So most people do progress to finalist status. I think it's usually about 15,000 or 90% of students do progress to finalist status. Um, The ones that don't, it's usually because maybe you had a severe case of senioritis and your grades really tanked in senior year. or maybe your test scores really came in very low. So most people do progress, but not everybody does. But you'll be notified in February if you progress. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I actually had a student when I was a high school counselor in one of my mm-hmm. many lives who did not progress. He was the only one. And he was a very bright student who just really didn't choose to work very hard. So, yep. and so that'll, that was, <laughs> that'll do it. That'll do it, yeah. Um, okay, and so what does it mean to be a finalist in general? Okay, so... I think one of the most important things to remember is that being a finalist doesn't always mean you're going to get money. I mean, it it increases the chances that you will. And National Merit currently says about 50 to 60% of finalists actually end up getting money. So whether or not you get money will really depend on the schools that you're looking at because you can only get money from schools that participate in the National Merit Program. Um, And it can also... uh, you know, if whether or not your, you know, your parents' employer maybe has a corporate award through National Merit or maybe a local company, those things will determine whether or not you actually get money. Now, on the National Merit Scholarship Corporation website, which is a great resource for people to use, um, there is a student guide, and they actually have a list of all of the participating colleges and all of the participating corporations. Okay. All right. Great. Um so how much typically do schools award? What do the awards look like? So that's, that's the magic question. I mean, that's, that's what people really need to try to figure out. It really depends on the school. 
So national merit sets a minimum. So they say to a school, if you're going to participate in the national merit award uh, program, you have to award $1,000, at least $1,000 to uh, students who don't have need and at least $2,000 to students who do have need. At least I'm pretty sure those what the what the minimums are right now. But the minimums are really pretty low. Um, and so then how much the schools you're considering will offer really depends on the school. So just like every other kind of merit scholarships, the more selective a college is, the less likely it is that they offer a significant award. So in other words, most of the highly selective colleges, the Ivy Leagues, the highly selective colleges, they just offer the minimum to national Mm -hmm. merit finalists. But then there are colleges out there who offer more than the minimum, and sometimes they'll offer quite a bit more than the minimum. Sometimes they'll attach other benefits like summer research or study abroad. So it really depends on the school, but the selectivity of the school is really what drives that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I worked at University of Chicago, we offered the bare minimum. So I used to tell families not to worry about it that much. Um, But is there a list? I mean, some some families are really looking forward to a pretty significant merit scholarship. So is there a list of what schools will offer to national merit scholar, national merit finalists, excuse me? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's not. Um, I wish there was, right? But there's, I mean, the national merit list that they publish just tells you that these are the schools that participate. Um, you can research the college's websites themselves. Um, I've also found information on College Confidential. Um, mm. You know, if you search some terms like, you know, who gives a lot of money for national merit finalists, uh, you might find some conversations that have happened that list some schools that do. Um, but unfortunately, there's no clean list out there. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. I, I'm a little iffy sometimes on College Confidential because I see complaints that you need to take with, you know, they'll write negative right. things about colleges and yep. you don't want to rely on that. But this seems like maybe a little bit, if you just use it as a source and then you go to the college and ask exactly. them, that might be a good way to do it. Yeah, yeah that makes exactly. sense. Use it as a way to find some schools <clears throat> um, and then also just talk to talk to the, cool, the schools that you're considering and see what they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, good. Good. Um, and yeah, and I will say I did, I did know of some schools that had 50% in full tuition oh, yeah. scholarships. So I, some were significant. We some that would offer a full tuition, full, full tuition scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So I know that one of the pieces uh, to get the National Merit Scholarship from the college, you have to select it as a first choice school. So when do students have to select a first choice school? And, and kind of what does that mean? Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, and that, that is probably one of the I don't, more stressful parts of being a National Merit finalist is, is this question of who should I choose as first choice? Um, so the timing is that you're notified in February that you're a finalist. And then National Merit asks you to select a first choice by March 1st. But they also tell you that you can remain undecided if you choose to. So that's, that's up to you. And we're going to make sure to talk about when you have to make your mind up for sure. But by March 1st, they'd like you um, to say which one is first choice. Now, in terms of how you might answer that or how you might designate a first choice school, there are a couple things to look at. Um, the first is that most schools will award money to any finalist who selects them as first choice by National Merit's regular deadline, which is much later in the spring. Um, But there are some schools who will, because they're big 
and they're large and they want to limit the number of awards that they give, they may only award to students who select them as first choice in that first round on March 1st. Mm. So you just want to read the fine print of what a college's website says about who they award money to. Um, Mm. Because there are a few schools out there who say, yep, we'll award you um, money if you appear, if you select us as first choice and you appear on our first roster at the beginning of March. Because what happens is when you select a school as first choice, then National Merit notifies the school that you've done that. Um, So that's one strategy to keep in mind. You want to make sure you're researching the schools. Again, it's not that many schools that require that, um, but you just want to read that fine print. Um, The other reason you might want to choose a particular school is if you want to really demonstrate interest. So maybe you're looking at only highly selective schools. You know you're not going to get that much money from National Merit, from the National Merit Program. Um, But if you select a school as first choice, they do get notified, and that's a way for them to know that you're highly interested. So that's that's another strategy you might keep in mind. Sure. And I want to say again that at Chicago, that wouldn't have made a difference. Right. Um, But I think that at another school that was maybe one small level of selectivity down, it might have made a very big difference. Oh, yeah. We definitely paid attention to those lists to see. I mean, and it it might not make a difference in admissibility um, because they were very highly qualified students already, but it was certainly good information for us to have to see who was was interested. Sure. And this was at St. Olaf, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Yep. So it's, um, I mean, it, it does send a message to the school when you when you select them as first choice. Sure. But you you also can remain undecided. Um, the important thing to know, though, is that um, National Merit will tell you you have until April 30th to change your school first choice, um, and they actually even will say you have later than that. But the danger here is that if you select a school as first choice, and then they Um, They say, yes, we want to sponsor this person. And on May 1st, National Merit announces that because May 1st is the day that National Merit announces everything. Once it's announced, it can't be changed. So my rule of thumb is change your mind by April 30th and you're okay. Um, And you shouldn't get in trouble, Um, even though National Merit will actually tell you you have a little longer. But I would say change it by April 30th because you want to be careful about not having the wrong award announced. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. So what about any good resources? I mean, you've mentioned a couple so far, but any, any yeah, places I mean, people I think can look? The National Merit Scholarship Corporation is a great resource for, for students, especially there are students out there who are being considered for corporate awards. Um, and sometimes that can be a confusing process. So the National Merit Scholarship Corporation is a great resource. They're happy to talk to students. They're nice Midwesterners. They're located in Illinois. <laughs> um, and they're happy to talk to people if you've got questions about this process. The colleges themselves, there's usually an admission or a financial aid person who's sort of an expert on the program. And they're, they're a good resource, too. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. good. In relation to the college's policies, because that's what's most important. It comes back to the college every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually really recommend that students, again, um, I mean, Kenan and I were talking about this earlier on the show in terms of, um, you know, students with uh, CD grades, what should they do and should they, and, and I really recommended that they use the offices of admission that the folks that, that they use the folks who worked there as advocates for them, people who were there to help them. And yeah. uh, I really think you can do the same thing with people who work in offices of admission. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. That's why they're there. They want to help you through the process and they want you to have good information. 
Mm-hmm. And my sense is that that's going to be especially the case with a smaller college. Is that, yeah. do you think that's correct? Okay. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Great. Well, Kathy, um, Thanks so much, Kathy, for your help here, and thanks so much to Kenan. And I do want to let everybody know that we have a great show coming up next week. Beth Heaton will be back as the host, and she and her guests will be covering the Wake Forest supplemental questions. And I can tell you that Wake Forest has some tricky questions as well. Um, She'll also be covering the new PSAT this October, and she'll be covering scholarships for current and returning students. And also, I just want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Um, Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website. And you can also download every show for free on iTunes. Um, So get in there and check out our archives. The last few weeks, by the way, we did some great segments on the University of California system and on public honors colleges. Um, There's a ton of great stuff in each of those segments. And please don't forget that we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. So we look forward to hearing from you then. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.